Greetings from the Cosmic Horror. The stars are right once again, and the great old ones allow us to talk about for 30 plus minutes H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer who is a genre unto himself. I'm your Cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executor of the Lovecraft Estate on Yogath, joined in by two from the material world, David Guffey, a professor of Mispatonk University, and Richard Wilson, who is ready for Frank Marsh to paint his portrait. Today's guest is Gemma Files, author of such books as Experimental Film and A Book of Tongues, the first part of her Hex Slinger series. Five or short stories, um, or she wrote five stories for the television series The Hunger. Today, she's here with us to talk about one story in particular by Lovecraft. Thank you for joining us, Gemma Files. Thank you for uh, asking me to join you. Uh, Medusa's Coil is regarded as Lovecraft's most racist collaboration. Would you agree with that assessment? Unfortunately, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to get away from that, considering that the um, basically the the punchline of the story is like on the one hand this woman died and then her hair became imbued with eldritch power and it basically detached itself from her skeleton and crawled around and murdered people but the really terrible thing is that though you couldn't tell from looking at her she was a negress you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that it's impossible to get away from it. It, yeah. it just can't, uh, can't be I won't, I won't talk about that ending later on because it's put up. But I was just like, a, just for a note of caution for listeners and all that, we will be talking about racism. So we will try to keep it civilized, but, you know, at the same time, we still may get banned from the state of Florida. Uh, so uh, how did you find out about the story? It's not what um, it's been around. I, I read it. It, it took me a while to come to Lovecraft, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I'd read some Lovecraft when I was younger. Uh, I remember, for example, reading The Rats in the Walls and a couple of other things when I was in high school. But uh, I managed to become a horror author without having actually read a lot of Lovecraft. Uh, and then I met S.T. Yoshi at, uh, I believe, World Fantasy when it was in Toronto. Um, he was impressed by something that I wrote and read there, and um, which is a short story called uh, One in the Morning and One at Night, which uh, was most recently republished in my collection, uh, Dark is Better, which is out right now from Trepidatio. Um, and he got in touch with me and he asked me if I would contribute something to uh, A Mountain Walked. And I said, I've never really written anything Lovecraftian before I don't actually know much about Lovecraft but I sent him something and he said no 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 this is good this is good I'm like all right um so that was my moment where I sort of started moving towards cosmic horror and one of the first things that I did was I started reading a bunch of Lovecraft and a friend of mine gave me <laughs> a book which was entirely it, it was actually a book that Yoshi had uh, put together uh, which was entirely his collaborations with other people. And one of those, the one that jumped out at me was Medusa's Coil because I was just like, <laughs> on the one hand, I really like this. And on the other hand, what the right. crippity crap, you know, it was, it was just amazing. Um, it, it so did you know me, anything about Medusa's Coil before you read it? No, not yeah. at all. I had never even heard of it before. Um, it, it reminded me, of course, of Robert E. Howard, whose, you know, whose stuff I also like, but occasionally you, you, you trip across stuff and you're just like, ah, okay, <laughs> all right, you know, this was, this was a different time. 
Um, but yeah, Medusa's coil. Um, and so when, uh, when I was asked later on to, by Silvia Moreno Garcia to contribute something to what eventually became Cthulhu's Daughters, uh, you know, the idea was take something from Lovecraft and rewrite it from the point of view of the female character. Um, because Lovecraft is known for a couple of things. And one of them is that uh, he, yeah, it's like, what's he afraid of? Uh, seafood and vaginas. Um, oh. <laughs> and also Polish people, for some reason. Yeah, it's like those, those strange Polish people from New York. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, so I, I was like, Marceline Bedard, Marceline Bedard. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to write it from her point of view. Uh, before we go delve into deep into that, I wanted to like, kind of set a little groundwork so some of the right. people not familiar with the story can know exactly what we're talking about. Um, uh, first off, the collaborator was Zelia Bishop. Have you done That's much right. research into her? Um, I know that they, uh, they I, I think they wrote two other stories together, mm -hmm. uh, one of them being um, The Curse of Yig. Yeah. yeah. Uh, about the snake which I actually quite like. Yeah. You know what? I think that was actually the first thing that I read uh, that had Lovecraft in it at all because it was uh, included in a collection of just horror but yeah. uh, I think yeah. they should have stayed right at Curse of Yig and not done yeah. anything else <laughs> Curse, of Yig, <laughs> Curse of Yig is pretty great um, you know even there it's like yeah. I, I think some indigenous people might have some trouble with the Curse of Yig but uh, you know who knows and then the, um, there was the mound did you read the mound yeah, the mound. I didn't read the mound until after I read Medusa's Coil. Yeah. Um, that was really interesting in a lot of strange ways, you know. Um, and I, I like some of the stuff that people have done later with the mound dwellers, the the Earth people. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah. Um, so uh, at the time, I think it was represented to me not so much as a collaboration as. A Lovecraft story um, and which you know depending on what anthology you get a hold of or what collection you get a hold of there's a lot of people who are sort of like yeah you know this was mainly Lovecraft and I'm like I'm not entirely sure that's true. She um, was mostly known for writing love stories and, mm. and uh, Lovecraft was trying to like you know, get her away from that and but she she loved doing those stories and so she continued writing it but I guess you know this day and age she's known best for you know, those three stories of Lovecraft. Well, um, you know, the same way that uh, the guy who wrote the Yellow Sign, Chambers, was also, weirdly enough, mainly known for writing love stories. Yeah. <laughs> and if you uh, if you ever read The King in Yellow, you, you know, half of it is essentially romantic fiction. I was thinking, like, the, most people think of, like, kind of like, you know, the, the few, few chapters in The King of Yellow, but then there's other stories that they kind of ignore. Yeah, that's true. And some of them are actually pretty good. And, I'm pretty um, uh I'm pretty fond of the Court of the Dragon, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh yes. So um, you know, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting um meld between the two of them. Uh I think in a lot of ways, uh he's looking to introduce her to a different market uh and a different genre, and um she's also interested in that i'm sure um but you know also i know that a lot of the collaborative work that he did was a because 
he would get to know people through his correspondence and want want to help them um, because those uh, friendships meant a lot to him. But also he he needed money too. So yeah, I think that they met six one. They put a one ad in the paper, if I remember correctly, and she saw it and contacted them through that way. Yeah, that makes so, sense. And yeah, no, that makes good. a lot of sense. And we'll need to go through some of the cast of characters uh, for the story. Uh, we have the unnamed narrator who mm -hmm. pops up. And I guess you could say that um, uh, he's definitely a stranger to the area. It takes place in close to Cape Girardeau, uh, Missouri. That's right. And um, then you have um, Antoine de Russie. Yeah. And um, who is kind of like, a, I guess, the father. And um, who seems to know an awful lot about Cthulhu for somebody who's just kind of like, you know, works on the, lived on a southern plantation. Well, you know, uh, there's uh, that old lady who lives in a shack on his property who keeps talking about old Mars Clulu. Yeah. So maybe he's getting it that way. Yeah, it could be. Um, Sophonispa, say say her name. Sophonispa. Sophonispa, yeah. Aunt Sophie, as she's also called. That's her. She was um, uh, supposed to be over 100 years old, maybe a Zulu woman. And um, she literally kissed the ground when Marceline appeared. Mm. And Marceline being the um, uh, the woman in question that Antoine's son, Dennis, meets That's while right. he's in Paris. Ah, uh, yes, those decadent Parisians yeah. um, who just can't tell a, a lovely-looking lady with ivory skin yeah. uh, from a... <laughs> From a very down low red bone lady. Now the uh, from the notes about the the story that she wanted a uh, Zeli Bishop wanted Marceline to be like a vampire or a lima lima a, a lamia lama lamia yeah. lamia. But I never got the impression that she was that. She struck me more as almost like being a priestess. Yeah, she's definitely. Uh, you know, I mean. Uh, Antoine talks about how she was the leader of a cult, um, and yes, that she represents herself as a priestess, um, and, you know, he he certainly seems to think that she's a bit of a, more of an illusionist, uh, you know, like a person who's um, just implying that she has powers that she doesn't actually have. Boy, is he wrong. <laughs> you know, either she has powers or her hair has powers. <laughs> Could be. And then we have the last cast of it all, Frank Marsh. Yes. Uh, the best friend artist with a very suspicious surname. Mm. Yes. I, I I must admit, I get the feeling that Frank probably has pretty poppy eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I found it odd that Lovecraft never made any, you know, connection with Love. I mean, with Marsh, you know, like, you know, ends mouth or anything like that. But you did in your story. You did make yes. an allusion to it. Well, I mean, I. If, if a guy named whose surname is Marsh pops up in a Lovecraft story, then he's obviously related to right. the people of the of Yohannifle. Yeah, he definitely comes from a different way. Yeah, and all that. So, uh, can you give like a I guess a basic rundown of what the story was about? Um, okay, so basically, our nameless uh, our nameless protagonist um, is. Going down the road, he um, and he ends up taking shelter at uh, the Rossi plantation. It, in a weird way, it's sort of like uh, a Lovecraft pr protagonist has found himself inside a Robert E. Howard story because more than anything else, it, it reminds me a lot of, oh my God, Pigeons from Hell. 
you know, where it's just like, well, yeah. we wandered into this weird plantation and, you know, there was a strange thing in there and uh, yeah, what? Um, so the plantation's called Riverside. Yeah, yeah, Riverside, that's right. And basically, uh, you know, he, he takes shelter with this guy. Antoine starts telling him this story about, you know, it's like, wow, this is really a nice plantation, but it seems to have fallen to rack and ruin. Oh, yes, let me tell you about how my family, you know, ended up <laughs> running itself into the ground, particularly, you know, my son, who stupidly went to Paris to study art and then, you know, came back with this lady with her long, flowing, luscious, tangly locks. Um, you know, uh, Marcel, he, he doesn't approve of Marceline because he thinks she's a bit of a um, charlatan uh, and that she, you know, probably posed naked for people and uh, that she believes all sorts of occultist crap. Um, but he also, you know, I, I think on some level, he's like, there's something about that lady. I don't know what it is, but it makes my hair rise, so to speak, on my back. Um, and then Frank Marsh. Uh, who is Dennis's friend, shows up and he's like obsessed with painting a portrait of Marceline. And uh, Dennis becomes, yeah, he, he becomes uh, under the impression that Frank and Marceline are probably having some kind of affair, which I don't think is true. I think Frank is just like worshipping Marceline, essentially. Um, but he's also worshipping her and he's channeling this eldritch impression of her and at some point uh dennis walks in on him painting marceline and just goes insane he, he sees the painting and he's just like what the hell and you know um goes insane and he kills marceline and kills frank <laughs> and um, uh and he didn't they, kill frank did he I don't, I don't know whether he kills frank i thought um kills frank i thought um marceline killed frank yeah actually marceline does kill frank you're right um anyways he kills marceline's hair we should say you know. marceline's hair kills frank <laughs> yeah and marceline's um marceline's uh skeleton with a little bit of skin on ends up inside the wall uh because uh antoine basically um covers up for his son having committed murder, <laughs> you know, even though they were married, <laughs> it's still a crime. <laughs> and then, uh, and then Dennis, uh, Dennis hangs himself. Um, and so that's how things have been. Uh, the place is, has fallen to rack and ruin. Um, and uh, the only person left aside from uh, Antoine is, is old, old Miss Sophie, <laughs> old Aunt Sophie. And um, also there is something that crawls around the house at night. And as it turns out, the thing that crawls around the house at night and strangles people is Marceline's hair, which is turned into a Lamia of its own make, I guess. A Lamia being like half a vampire and half a snake. So it's definitely uh, a big snake made of hair. Wonderful story. It is actually weirdly a wonderful story. Yeah. It, um, it really gave me um, Faulkner, vi Faulknerian vibes, whatever you want to call it. Um, oh, definitely. Just felt like, you know, the, 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 the whole family that's decaying and, yes. the, and the plantation itself. Um, and then the, 
the real horror, like you said, is this racist thing with <laughs> finding out that Marceline is not a quote unquote white person, yeah. you know? Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> it's finding out that she had actual magical powers. That's bad enough. Finding right. out that her hair can crawl yeah, around nobody, on its own yeah, and kill no people. Deal, that's I mean, bad enough. Finding out that she has hurts. some kind of eldritch, you know, tenor to her that, you know, comes out in Frank Marsh's horrifying painting. That's which will literally make your your son go insane if he sees it. That's bad enough. But the really bad thing. Partially Negroid blood. She was a Negress. <laughs> yeah, she was a Negress. Now, did you ever read the um, when it got published in Weird Tales? They altered it just a little bit, and <laughs> yeah. um, they've one part where they altered it. Like in the original version of um, the narrator pulls out an automatic and starts shooting twelve rounds of bullets, you know, into <laughs> the painting, and uh, they changed it to he had a revolver and shot six, and all that. And so you know, I guess because like if you know the automatic having to shoot you know twelve bullets would have to like actually like reload, and so he starts yes, shooting again. That's what I kind of thought. <laughs> I mean, I. It also uh, fascinates me that that's the part they changed. Yeah, well, there's another part too. There's the ending of it too, as well. Yes, yeah. Where the ending got changed, where Marceline was a lonesome, bestial thing, and her forebears had come from Africa. That's how they changed that. Yes. Yeah. Situation resolved. Okay. Yeah. Well. I'm not sure how they thought that was a better thing. August yes. Derleth was the one who changed this. You know. Mixed everything. Mm, yeah no it's 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 again six of one half a dozen of the other really right um so so when it fell to me to try and revision this um there were a bunch of things that i that came swimming up to the to the top of my mind um the first one is that i'm i'm actually very fond of decadent art and um the scene around the turn of the century the turn of the 20th century in uh, in Paris, and you know, one of the things that I've always liked about that time period is that, you know, in in the same way that uh, during World War One, when um, African American soldiers came to came to Paris, you know, they discovered uh, a world of a little more cultural freedom. Um, there was like less of, I'm not saying that there wasn't racism because obviously there was racism, but, um, but there was, there was this real feeling that, you know, if you had talent that you could kind of write your way out, perform your way out, you could, you could paint your way out of uh, the strictures that you would, you know, formerly uh, felt that your life was, was doomed to kind of be enmeshed in. Um, and the person that I thought of a lot when I thought of um, Marcelin was uh, Sarah Bernhardt, um, who, uh, you know, who was a, a, an, a really interesting figure. Um, a lot of people don't really remember her anymore, but she was an actress. Uh, she was a director. She was a sculptor. Um, and uh, at the time that she, and, 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 a, and a courtesan, um, because being an actress and a courtesan were <laughs> kind of, you know, enmeshed things at the time. Um, and uh, when she first sort of emerged into um, uh, the flush of fame in Paris, uh, she did it by reimagining herself as, you know, she was she was a little redheaded lady who was pretty obviously Jewish. 
Um, and she took all the things that she, that had previously been thought of as drawbacks about herself and she brought them to the fore and refashioned them as kind of um, selling points. So it's like, yeah, you know, you, you, you look at me and you see, you know, a person who could be a vampire. You look at me as, and you see a person who could be, you know, a witch. You look at me and you see a person who could be a sorceress. Well, maybe I'm all of those things. You know, it's like um, she wasn't buxom. She wasn't, uh, you know, she didn't have the hourglass shape that a lot of people had, uh, a lot of beautiful women had back then, you know. And so instead she was, she was sort of like, you know, I, I'm going to sell myself on the basis of, um, you know, looking like I'm an insane somnambulist who sleeps in a coffin, <laughs> you know, and she literally did sleep in a coffin. You know, she would have pictures taken of herself sleeping in a coffin and sell them to people. Um, and I thought, yeah, this is a this is a perfect person for me to um, fashion a new version of Marceline around. Um, and so I, you know, she uh, Marceline's title in the story as part of the cult is Tanit Isis. And I'm like, okay, so she's, you know, she's come to She's come to Paris and she's reimagined herself as, you know, like half Egyptian and half Sumerian. And, you know, it's like perhaps, you know, uh, my magic reaches backwards to Africa. But, you know, that the time in Africa where, you know, Af being African and being Egyptian were kind of like the same thing, you know. So and, and the idea of like um, the idea of having a wig. Because one of the biggest things that I that I was thinking about, you know, if if Marceline is if Marceline is a African American person living on the down low, um, then one of the biggest things that she probably worries about is her is hair, you know, because of the whole um, thing of good hair and bad hair, right? You know, often um, you know Antoine talks a lot about how her hair is uh, so. You know, it's so long and beautiful, but it's also it has this weird kind of vitality to it, which I think has to do with curliness. You know, it's like it's so curly that it's almost kind of kind of mm, so so curly that it's almost too curly. You know, it's uh, you know, and and I was thinking about um, that whole thing of like conking your hair and straightening your hair and using lye on your hair and um you know, which, uh, which I first ran across when, when I saw Spike Lee's, um, Malcolm X. Malcolm, yeah. Yeah. Like the early days of, of Malcolm when he was a zoot suited, you know, semi-gangster and, and he was conking his hair all the time. Um, he, and he was a guy with red hair, you know, they called him red back then. Um, you know, an absolutely gorgeous, handsome man, you know, but he was, you know, that was, he was thinking of that as his, as his Achilles heel, as his, you know, it's like, oh, I got to do something about this hair, you know? And so I, I thought of it like that. And I thought, well, the easiest thing that you could do would be to go full wig. You know, you have your hair and then you have this wig. And then I thought also um, in Jewish tradition, uh, some Jewish tradition, um, you have, if you're an extremely, um, if you're an extremely hardcore <laughs> Jewish lady, sometimes you wear a, a wig over your hair. And I thought it would be really interesting if you had this, if you had this wig 
that was that the reason that the that the hair could you know like lift itself off your head and go roaming around is that the hair itself is a wig it's not attached to your head um and that it could be a, a wig that was made of hair going back to the time of isis going back to the time of tenet you know that this it was like literally a magical relic um and these were all things that you know came together in my mind as i was preparing to um preparing to write hair work um the other thing of course was the idea that uh Marcelin was probably part of the de Rossi family that you know I mean not in a way that Antoine would ever admit to but the idea that you know this is why Aunt Sophie recognizes her this is why this is why um, it's important to her to marry Dennis in the first place, not just because she's a charlatan and she thinks he has money, you know, and, you know, she gets a kick out of, you know, having having the Southern dude marry her, even even though she is a down low Negress, but because because it's actually part of a plan and the plan is, you know, that her grand her grandmother her mother you know like her grandmother was probably impregnated by uh Antoine's father you know her mother was probably one of Antoine's siblings um unacknowledged siblings and she is quite probably Antoine's Antoine's daughter and um and therefore Dennis is her half brother you know, and she's like, this is what I'm going to do. I, you know, it's like my mother made it out, made it away from the plantation, made it to Paris. You know, I have remade myself into this woman of power and influence and taken the magic that is inherent to me. And, you know, and now I'm going to punish the bad half of my blood, the real bad half of my blood, which is not the African half. It's the white half. It's the Durasis. So did you feel that um, I guess like the marriage would like bring about the downfall of yep. the, the plantation? Oh yeah. That the that the marriage would be part of, you know, so I'm just gonna run him into the ground. I'm gonna run him into the ground. I'm gonna run the plantation into the ground. I'm gonna, you know, it's like I my curse will fall upon you, <laughs> cried the lady of Shalad. You know. Did she envision that she would be like, I guess like a killed? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think she's fine with it. I think she's okay with it. I think she, she realizes that if she, that if she goes back to Riverside, that it's entirely possible. And, and when I say goes back, I don't think she remembers Riverside particularly well. But you know, that if she, that if she goes to Riverside, it's entirely possible that she will become a sacrifice to this spell that she's trying to um, complete. And uh, you intercut the story of uh, guys like takes place in modern times. The people like I guess like visiting Riverside, you know. And, uh, yeah, that's right. There's a there's a French lady um, who has become obsessed with Marceline and uh, wants to find out essentially what happened to her, um, and uh, particularly also is obsessed with um, Frank Marsh's painting and. <laughs> Uh, so the French lady has has come to Riverside to try and find 
any trace of Frank Marsh's painting. Um, and she is guided there by uh, a local guy um, who is, uh, you know, who again um, is probably descended from, uh, from people who used to work on the plantation and has his own um, store of lore about Marceline and the De Rossi's. And, um, and eventually they find this hat box with, <laughs> with the wig inside of it. <laughs> and they do find, find uh, at least a version of the painting, or at least, you know, like a really de degenerated, really degraded version of the painting with bullet holes in it and, and all the, and all the uh, paint dripping off of it. And the whole place is just like completely falling apart, um, even worse than it was before. I wanted it to be partially flooded because the idea of like soaked hair is so gross. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with that story. I'm really I'm really proud of it. Um, and it got reprinted a couple of times uh, in best of anthologies, so that was really nice. Now, was that a hard story to write? Did you struggle writing it, or did it come pretty easy for you? No, it actually came really easily. It actually came out really easily. I mean, once once you find a, for me, it's always about voice. And um, once you find the voice, then everything else kind of, uh, everything else kind of arranges itself around that. Um, my, uh, my parents are both uh, actors. And so I grew up listening to a lot of declamation, a lot of monologues, a lot of Shakespeare um and uh and radio plays too my my parents used to perform in radio plays uh, up here in Canada um and uh so often when a story catches hold of me it's all about the voice the monologue um and once I had Marceline everything else was just like butter <laughs> just went easy then yeah and I know you got a lot of praise for it. Um, I think like Miss Baton Review said three cheers for Jim and Fowles for taking it on. Um, did you feel like you were like, um, I guess, like making a powerful statement with the story or just writing a story? I, I wanted to make a statement with the story. Um, I, you know, I, I, I totally won't deny that. That That is absolutely what I wanted to do. Um, but I was just happy that it was a good story that, you know, from my point of view, it, was, it, it turned out to be as good as it was as it is you know uh I, I don't usually write from I suppose political motives <laughs> I usually just write about things I enjoy um although sometimes what I enjoy is I don't know writing about uh women ripping men apart and eating them so <laughs> you know <laughs> Good, moving on no. yes. yeah uh, there are not many letters between Zelia Bishop and Lovecraft over Medusa's Coil. A lot of them are missing. Mm. Um, but uh, we do have some of the notes that he left. And it seems that Zelia Bishop was the one who came to the idea of having the big reveal at the end, you know, like the, being a negress. And it was seemed to have been based on a, someone who cleaned her house. She seemed to have modeled uh, Marceline after her. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to know who this woman was. I, I would love to know who that woman was, too. I'd love to see that woman. You know, it's just such a strange idea. Um, it is it is interesting to me that um, you know, sometimes when you when you look at uh people from the 30s 
um, particularly people from like the beginning of the civil rights era and um, the uh, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. Um, they are very pale. <laughs> there are some very pale people. And, you know, because when I first, you know, started meeting people who were not white, um, it was like the 70s and the 80s. Um, and and there was almost this um, sort of movement towards, you know, like moving moving away from uh, from from people where it was really obvious that unfortunately um, there was a there was a lot of uh, what would you call that um, that sort of octoroon septoroon kind of thing going on that mulatto kind of thing going on that one drop thing going on um and uh you know somebody like i mean somebody like halle berry is a creamy kinky kind of person but she's very obviously african in most of the rest of her composition but but yeah it i mean oh i remember i once saw a picture of james baldwin with a cousin of his his cousin re reads completely as white and and yet they have exactly the same facial features mm. which is fascinating to me i mean the point is that whiteness is whiteness is a social construct and i say that as like the whitest person on the face of the fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i say that as a person where it's like hmm gee gee do i have blood in the face yep um, but I think you were correctly reading like people like Colin Powell and like Tiger Woods are more Irish than they are African. Hmm. You know, that right. I mean, you know, it's 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 a it's just a very strange thing. It's a it's a you know, it's like if you want to yeah, it's a whiteness is is a very strange thing. Uh I I often don't understand why any of us, you know, fight about it or you know, claim it or whatever. But it's easy to say when you're on one side of the divide. Yeah, I found a few artists online who are fascinated by Marceline, and mm. they've done a lot of artwork based on her. Uh, I can there, believe that. <laughs> yeah, there was one artist named Dark Precipice, you know, who mm -hmm. says one of her favorite Lovecraftian characters, and um, it, she really likes um, uh, Medusa's coil. But you have to ignore the blatant racism and the super weak reveal at the end. She says. Yeah. Which I think. I mean, is you know, when you think about. Uh, there's, you know, there's a definite fetish element to having incredible hair, to having like incredibly long hair, ropes of hair, you know, like braids and braids and braids of hair um, and hair that spreads everywhere, uh, hair that you can pick stuff up with almost or, you know, stick stuff in. Um, and it reminds me of the character Medusa from uh, The Eternals, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Black Bolt's wife. Um, oh, that you know, mean humans. Yeah. Yes, uh, who has red hair? <laughs> so if you if you wanted, you could uh, you could recast her <laughs> and and make her like a like a version of Marceline. And uh, but she made a comment. She said she thought that was one of Lovecraft's most well developed, intriguing, and dare I say, realistic characters, woman of color. Mm -hmm. And um, I think just because of like you know how many women of color characters he created, that's probably a very true statement. But do you feel that? She's a very realistic character. And I think that, yeah, I mean, when you're going through Lovecraft stuff, yes. I mean, let's face it. It's like, it's like, much like M.R. James, Lovecraft is not real great at, at writing women in general. 
Um, this is why I think three separate people chose to do, um, oh my God, what's her name? Uh, Artith um, from uh, the, uh, the thing on the doorstep. What's oh, the, her name? Um, uh, wait, Azareth yes, Wait. Yes, Azareth Wait. Yes. Yeah, I think three separate people chose to do Asenath Wait because, you know, it's like Asenath and Marsland. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, and the lady who hates snakes from <laughs> the Curse of Yig. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there was the, um, the Dunwich Horror. Um, oh, Watley. yeah. Yes, yes, Lavinia. Yeah, Lavinia Waitley. Um, yeah, I have a friend who uh, wrote an entire uh, novel about Lavinia or a uh, novella from the point of view of Lavinia. And yeah. Lavinia is an interesting character as well, but um, but they're very sidelong interesting. They're interesting from the point of view of like, wow, if you did something from their point of view, that would be interesting. But yeah, meanwhile, they're background characters. They're characters who, you know, and even with Asenath, it's like, let's face it, Asenath is actually her dad. Yeah, that's always kind of very problematic for a lot of people. You know, yes. like, do you really count her as a female? And uh, what do you... You know, was was Lovecraft going to be in transgender before transgender was like, you know, so vogue? Um, Carrie yeah, Laban you know. did some really interesting things with the weights, um, with the with the whole body swapping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the whole body swapping idea from uh, in her uh, novel, uh, A Hawk in the Woods, um, which is which is great. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, always. When you're a woman approaching, uh, when you're when you're yeah yeah when you're a woman um, approaching uh, a person who identifies as female approaching Lovecraft, you know you kind of have to deal with the fact that <laughs> uh, you when you're looking for yourself you're going to be a background character in the same way that if you're a person of color if you're looking for yourself you're going to be a background character, you know you're going to be uh, you're going to have to turn Lovecraft's original intentions inside out to some degree or at least just skew them you know just go like okay yes you have a bunch of assumptions about the world how it works and how it should work but let's skew it a little and see how it, the ways in which you might be fooling yourself the ways in which you might be wrong now is that a challenge to do that or is that like a source of inspiration it's a source of inspiration and it's a challenge you know, I mean, cosmic horror is one of the most um, overwhelmingly human forms of horror that I can think of, because essentially it boils down to existentialism. It boils down to existential dread. Right. And all of us are afraid of that. Everyone's afraid of that. You know, uh, everyone's afraid of being um, reduced to this tiny little screaming thing against this vast emptiness you know, everyone's afraid of um, your body turning against you. Everyone's afraid of going out like a candle. Everyone's afraid of, you know, all the stuff that is most integral to cosmic horror. And so really, that's the thing that we deal with when we deal with Lovecraft over and over and over again. You know, Lovecraft appears to be so narrow, but he's actually so wide. His view of his own horror is narrow but the horror itself, gigantic, all-encompassing. So basically, you, you feel that he created a world that is that allows everybody to come in, even though he may have just focused on, on certain aspects of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of people, a lot of queer people, um, and uh, a lot of people who uh, are, you know, uh, uh, for example, uh, neurotypical. I myself, uh, my, my son is on the autism spectrum. Uh, he has a diagnosis. I do not have a diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure that I am on the autism spectrum as well. Um, and a lot, I know a lot of people who are queer and neurotypical who uh, identify very heavily with the people from Innsmouth, with the idea of there is something innate in me that other people seem to react to. I can't do anything about it. it it's part of my, you know, of my identity and, you know, my, my truth. Um, and, you know, to, to be a, a person lost in a world that doesn't seem to be made for them. And so uh, the horror of Innsmouth so from, you know, from Lovecraft's point of view is that you start out looking reasonably human and then you become more and more fish-like and then eventually you have to take to the sea and go down to Yohanifle and, you know, and, but meanwhile, even at the end of the shadow over Innsmouth. It doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound so terrible, really. It sounds kind of amazing. <laughs> you know, you go down there and you, you know, you wear all the, the gold jewelry and, you know, you and you live forever. And, you, <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and when the waters rise, you're fine. <laughs> you know? um, and, and, you know, and I know a lot of people who um, really have, you know, used that identification with the people from Innsmouth. To, as their entrance into Lovecraft, as their entrance into, you know, it's like this is this is this hole was made for me, as Junji Ito says. <laughs> you know, it's like this is the place where I come in. Uh, there was a, made me think of a question when I asked earlier. Um, Aunt Sophie, she seems to be very familiar with Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. You know, even pronounces his name correctly. It's supposed to be Clulu. We're supposed to say it. Yep. And um, but. Um, it made me think of like, it seems like, you know, that Cthulhu is almost like a god for the repressed. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, it's like you, I, I, I have this idea that I've been working with for a long time, um, you know, uh, for really the, the last 30 years, uh, this idea of, you know, um, growing up undiagnosed, I, I had always this feeling that I was too much for the people around me, too angry too uh, too smart, too um, too weird, too odd, um, too anxious, too fearful, too whatever. Um, and when you feel like that, you feel like you're a monster. You feel like there's something monstrous about you. And the older I got, the more I, I felt like, well, perhaps my monstrosity is not something to be ashamed of perhaps it is something to be proud of this idea of monster pride you know um, <laughs> which i i think uh i i think first came out in the in the um the mouth of a character uh i made up called uh alifar chatwin who's a holler witch um a a cat who's <laughs> like monster pride pretty much my <laughs> is pretty much my main idea you know um, it's like you are you are who you are, and there's no point in being um, in, in being unhappy with yourself for being who you are. And after a while, there's no point in being unhappy 
with the people around you for not being who you are, you know? Um, and it's, it's been really useful to me. And I think that, yes, the, the God of the repressed, the God of the, the God of the monstrous, you know, it's like normal people will be horrified by this, but maybe not you and maybe not you and maybe not you and maybe not, <laughs> nah. actually you know <laughs> the rest of us will be fine <laughs> and, uh, i guess made me think of like doctor who a lot of times the monsters in doctor who end up not being quite as bad as you think they were it's always the humans who are always worse that's true that's true and you know and of course you can go too far that in that direction as well right um mm. one of the interesting things that i've realized about the idea of the spectrum is that much like uh, the idea of a political spectrum, it's like it goes around in a circle, really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you go too far in either direction and you end up ex in exactly the same place. Um, I think that more than dividing the world into neurotypical people and neuroatypical people, it might be smarter to say that all of us have our things. All of us have something going on, you know, um, in, in much the same way that people on the spectrum tend to share a multiplicity of symptomology, but we're not all exactly the same. You know, it's like the, 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 old, the old idea that if you know one child with autism, you know one child with autism. You know, so we're all it's different in our own little, little ways. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and if we can find the ways to intersect, if we can find the jargons to adopt with each other, if we can find the languages to speak to each other, we will find that we are more alike than we are different. Maybe we're all monsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can deal with that. In the end, we're all monsters, yeah. Yes, uh, in the end. <laughs> so are there any other Lovecraft stories you wanted to deconstruct but haven't gotten around to? Oh, I think... Um, I think there's always something that you can do with Lovecraft. Um, I would kind of like to do something with the rats in the walls um, because, you know, that's, that's half of my, uh, that's half of my genetic makeup. Um, you know, uh, the rats or no, no, no weird, oh. weird, you know, weird British people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, weird flabby British people living under the ground yeah. that's, uh, yeah, eating each other. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a there's a real folk horror thing to that to that particular story, which I love. And you know, folk horror is probably like my folk horror is probably like my favorite type of horror, uh, with uh, cosmic horror being like a close second. Um, so yes, that would be that would be the thing that I would uh, that would, that I would concentrate on if I got a chance to do that again. Um, but more, you know, more than anything, um, the times that I've um, done stuff designed for uh, an anthology that takes its uh, inspiration from Lovecraft, um, I just tend to think about it in the same way that um, Ellen Datlow thinks about it, which is its themes, not language. It's, you know, it's, you know, it, it's not so much... Um, it, take the uh take the mythology and run with it it's more like take the ideas lurking underneath the mythology and run with them that always seems to work out really well i am quite amazed of how lovecraft can keep inspiring new and 
more and new stories. I know. You was you would think that after a while you'd be beating a dead horse, but it seemed like people always find new stuff to talk about. I I always think that the you know there's so much in Lovecraft that is good <laughs> that is that is inclusive, like weirdly inclusive. In a lot of ways, Lovecraft was like the original strange nerd living in his, you know, his parents' basement, you know, um, and I know that most of the horror writers that I know kind of think of themselves in the same way, um, and, you know, you go in one direction, you get Hellboy, you know, you go in another direction, you get a whole bunch of other stuff, um, but yeah, there's, there's like a, there's like a model that's inherent in Lovecraft that just is capable of appealing to everyone. You know, if we just drop the the difficulty that we have with Lovecraft himself, you know, it's almost like he stumbled on a whole bunch of great things. And then, you know, which makes sense because his friend, you know, he managed to inspire all his friends <laughs> and they they took all the stuff they liked and ran with it. So might as well keep running. Yeah. So just keep the good stuff and jet, jet out the bad. What you know? What I have a garburetor brain, and that's what I tend to do, anyways. You know, it's like even a movie that I don't like <laughs> overall, or, or a movie where I'm like, yeah, overall this is this is crap. But there was this one thing that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and and, and this one thing that was kind of interesting is the way that I think about so many things. It's like, mm, what's this? Oh, it's a little mold spore. You know, little little. I can grow a mushroom from this. You know, I can stick it in my brain until it starts to itch, and then ooh. I can understand. You know, there's like this really bad movie. There's like this one scene that's like so great. Yes, and like... yeah, and it suggests a whole other film. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I used to be a, a film critic, and one of the things that always amazed me about other about fellow critics was that they would often fall into this weird thing of um, not looking at the movie for what it was but rather looking at the movie from the point of view of, you know, what it wasn't, you know. <laughs> um, I, I was one of the only people in Toronto who actually liked genre films. So often I would walk out of screenings and, you know, someone from like the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star would turn to me and go, did you like that? <laughs> I'd be like, did you like that? Right. I guess you didn't. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, it's like... <laughs> You, you you knew what it was when you came in, man. <laughs> it's like it's it's like my mom complaining about bag of bones turning into a stupid fucking ghost story. <laughs> it's like I mean I really liked most of it, you know, and and then it turned into a stupid fucking ghost story. Yeah. Like, dude, it was a it was a Stephen King book. <laughs> you you knew it. You saw his name. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? Well, anyway, the. Um... The phrase, the phrase for this episode comes from Medusa's Coil. There was a very curious phrase that was used to describe Marceline. Yeah. It was called the left-handed daughter of Marquise de Chamou. Mm. Do you have any idea what that means? Uh, the left-handed daughter would be like the bastard daughter. The bastard daughter of the Marquise de Chamou. Now, I'm thinking that the Marquise de Chamou is like some guy he, she made up, <laughs> you know? It's like I, I am a, I, I am actually an aristocrat. I have aristocratic blood, but it comes from the left hand of the bed, you know, the left side of the bed. 
you know. I had uh, posted the question on the Lovecraft Eternal Facebook page, and I got an answer from one person that I would, um, David um, Gordsward, mm. who is the author of Lovecraft and Merrimack Valley. Mm. And um, I, I'm not sure what to make of his answer, but because he's kind of considered a little bit of authority on Lovecraft, I'm taking it a little bit more seriously okay. than others. But he says it's one of Lovecraft's most obscure inside jokes. Uh, this <laughs> I, I can totally believe that. It has connection to the Talmudic um, lore in saying that, um, you know, the Talmud, it wasn't Satan who caused the fall of Adam and Eve, but instead of an archangel named Samuel. Samael. And Martin, and Martin Samael. Samael, yeah. Samael. Yeah. In a lot of, um, <laughs> in a lot of uh, Jewish mythology, the original name of uh, Lucifer or or Satan rather the Satan is Samael. Yeah, but you but you know, like in stories, Satan took the form of a snake, but mm -hmm. Samuel, how you want to say it, uh, wrote a snake like a camel. Ah. And um it comes from that name for it's like a, a, a Shem Samu. Let me get the make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Shamu is like a word for camel. Okay. And so base is a reference to him. <laughs> and basically saying that, you know, he's an illegitimate daughter of basically Satan, you know. Okay. All right. That's yeah. a, that's interesting. Uh Payman is also supposed to ride a camel, which is a strange thing. Um maybe yeah. demons just ride camels a lot because it's hot in hell. Yeah. And um, I guess we should explain one thing about like, you know, the the snake walking like a camel. You know, before the fall of man. Oh and, yeah, and, with the you know back when snakes had the legs. snake could walk. You know, before <laughs> it was cursed to slither. So you know that's um, okay. one of one of the weirdest things uh, in terms of snake mythology that I ever tripped across was the idea that if you throw a snake into the fire, it will grow legs and walk away. Um, mm. No, if you throw a snake into the fire, its cloaca will pop open and its penis will fall out. And then the snake will die. Okay. So it's it doesn't not, walk out at all then. Not yeah. legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not even one leg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just going by, just thought of like, you know, like a, you know, with the snake being like a camel one time, you know, yeah. with Medusa's coil, mm. you know, with the snake hair, yeah. you know, maybe that's where her power came from, you know. Oh, yeah. Her humps. Her house, yes. her lovely lady lumps. Yes. Maybe. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, well, and if I have a black eyed peas reference in here. And while we're getting prepared for this, like um, this episode, uh, uh, the guys watched um, a few of the episodes that you had um, wrote stories for, for The Hunger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, uh, they were very curious about that show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So basically, uh, The Hunger was put together by Ridley and Tony Scott um, as a <laughs> as a showcase uh, for for um, European directors and aspiring directors who were already working in um, uh, the making of commercials and music videos, which is where the where the Scott brothers started out. They too started out um, making commercials and, and music videos and then moved to making feature length films. So the idea was that they would bring over uh, a bunch of um, 
people from uh, aspiring directors who also wanted to make that jump from Europe, uh, one of whom was Marcus Nispel, for example, um, and uh, who would later go on to make the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre re revisioning. Um, and the idea was that they would hook them up with like a half hour um, adaptation and these guys could then use that as part of their reel to enter Hollywood to prove to um, people in Hollywood that they were uh, capable of you know making something that was uh, reasonably budgeted and creepy and um, visually interesting uh, and working within uh, a certain um, uh, a certain set of rules. Um, the idea was that the stories needed to be sexual in some way. They needed to be um, creepy, but also sexy. Um, I remember one time I walked into, I, yeah, I, I got to sit in the writer's room twice on that show. And one time I walked into the writer's room and there was like a list of um, rules up on the rules for writing a, an episode of The Hunger up on the wall. And the first one was everybody gets naked. <laughs> and the second one was women are always evil and naked. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, uh... I did pick up on that recurring theme in those episodes. Yes, yes, yes. Strangely enough. So how'd you feel uh, about that? All women being evil and naked. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay. So they shot it up here. They shot it out of Montreal. And um, so one of the things that they wanted to do was they wanted to get a certain amount of points on the Canadian content scale so that they could get money not only from the, uh, the Quebec Provincial Film Fund, but also from the overall Canadian Film Fund um, to, uh, to give them a little bit more money to play with than, uh, than you know, uh, the the channel that they were working for was was willing to give them um and uh yeah which i think was showtime in the states um and oh that explains it yeah exactly yeah. so yeah. one of the ways that they got more points on the scale was i mean they didn't want to hire too many um main characters uh as canadian actors because you know it's like yeah everybody else can be canadian but no, we, we need to get people with TVQ. We need to get people with recognizability. And therefore, they have to be either people from um, Europe uh, or uh, people from, uh, from America. <laughs> you know? uh, and um, so one of the ways they got around this was by optioning uh, stuff by Canadian writers. And so Dave Nichol, uh, sold them the Sloan men and he got in touch with me and said they're looking for short stories uh, why don't you send them and we, we were in we were in the same anthology it was a series of anthologies called Northern Frights which was Canadian horror it was like all Canadian horror um, and he said that's how they found me they probably know you so why don't you get in touch with them so I did um, and the stories that I ended up selling them were all optioned on that basis. Um, and I ended up uh, writing two scripts on my own, two adaptations of my own stuff, you know, like one per, um, one per season, um, which, was, which was nice. Uh, 
I got a lot of money out of, out of that. Most money I'd ever made on, on anything up to that point. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, um, even back then, I wrote a lot of queer stuff. And there were a fair, there were a fair amount of my stories that they turned down simply because they had guys in them as opposed to men and women or lesbians. They got one just because it had a lot of lesbian sex in it. Um, <laughs> and strangely enough, I actually wrote the script for that and I had to rewrite it to take out the lesbian sex in it. <laughs> because they about that. <laughs> yeah, because the lady uh the lady that they got as their um as their well-known american star um she uh was kathy moriarty and she was like i don't i'm not gonna kiss no girl it's not gonna happen so yeah i noticed that in that episode they kind of like ain't gonna work around her <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah i mean that character was supposed to be a lesbian and that was the point of the exercise okay. <laughs> but uh yeah one of the points of the exercise was that she was a lesbian and that her uh her niece who is named after her is also a lesbian but um, and and therefore the uh the um the the sexy gin inside the bottle, the bottle of smoke is, you know, takes the form of her, of her aunt, um, you know, her, her sexy lesbian aunt. But uh, yeah, no, no, that didn't work. None of that worked. I had to take all of that out. <laughs> so amusingly, they also optioned another one of my stories, uh, The Guided Tour, which ended up being called Wrath of God. Um, they, they rewrote it from the bottom up because the person it was assigned to uh, the person who was going to do the um, the adaptation of that was a guy who had just come out as gay. And he was, he was like, I, I was kind of hoping I could do like a gay romance kind of thing. And they were like, yeah, no, that's not. <laughs> so they had to rewrite it completely so that there's this, <laughs> there's this you know, it's like, man, I could have sold you something that had gay people right in the middle of it but no anyway so it was a it was an interesting it was an interesting experience hmm. taught me a lot taught me a lot about hollywood and uh and it also taught me a lot about uh um what we call runaway production here in canada which is um where people come up to canada and they make movies and tv shows and what have you uh, and they use the system, but they don't really give back to the system all that much. Which, I know a lot, uh, of the, a lot of the was, TV shows are being made in, in Canada, and they would say they're like, you know, takes place in Seattle or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or Chicago. Um, uh, I, I remember one time I came out the side of uh, the building that I was living in, um, which is um, down in downtown Toronto, and suddenly uh, the side street that I usually came out onto had turned into New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is this? Guys <laughs> like, oh yeah, we're we're shooting a we're shooting a movie called Sinkhole. <laughs> Just like about a sinkhole, you know, opening up in downtown New Orleans. Oh wow. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. that, that must have been really wild, like you know, like be living like where a movie's being made in your whole like you know, little area that gets transformed and changed. It's uh it's a fascinating thing. I mean, you know, I, I've often said that um, when I watch old Cronenberg movies, it reminds me of my childhood. 
<laughs> because I recognize everybody who's in the, and I recognize all the places where they're being shot. <laughs> oh yeah, and also the fact that uh, um, there's uh, a lot of body horror. Michael in your Ironside came to my house once and changed my fuses, but uh, yeah, <laughs> my my mom was out uh, taking a class with uh, with other actors. And all the all the fuses went blue in in our house, and I I phoned her up and I was like, the lights have all gone off, and I'm I'm so scared. And she's like, oh yeah, okay, all right. Well, I'll I'll come home as 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 fast as I can. Um, I think probably uh, the guy that I'm doing scenes with, my scene partner, he'll be able to get there faster. So about 15 minutes later, there's a knock at the door, and I look out. <laughs> through the hole and uh you know there's michael ironside and he's like hi my name's mike i was doing scenes with your mom you know it's like i'm here to change your fuses like oh my god daryl revick's at my door it was interesting but yeah you know it's like that's that's what being a, a canadian is like um you know you uh you 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 live in the shadow of american culture um and you know it was it was certainly uh useful when I started to teach um, Canadian film history. <laughs> Although I had to be, uh, I had to tell people things that they didn't know, or that they didn't know and they didn't want to know about the Canadian film industry. I think it's a weird bragging right you can say Michael Ironside came to your house to change the views. It's and, true. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's but but, uh, but it, was, it was good. All right. Anyway. Um, uh, you want to promote anything you've been working on lately? Yes. Um, so I had two collections of short fiction that came out this year. Um, last last year, I won the Bram Stoker Award for a collection called In That Endlessness, Our End, which came out the year before um, from Grimscribe Press. And this year, this book, Blood from the Air, is also coming out from Grimscribe. Um, it's going to be out in October. I like and, the art. Mm -hmm. That's uh, a cool cover. Yeah. Thank you. And um, I also have a collection called Dark is Better, which is out right now from Trepidatio. And uh, they break down as usual into uh, Dark is Better is more uh, sort of urban contemporary horror and uh, Blood from the Air is more fantastical horror. Um, uh, often um, set in different time periods. Mm. Um, but, you know, one way or the other, uh, get both those books. You'll know a lot about me. You'll know a lot about what I like. <laughs> All right. No. Is Michael Ironside mentioned any of them? <laughs> no, I, no, I don't believe I mentioned Michael Ironside. Not okay. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you for coming aboard. And um, well, Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun talking to you guys. Yeah, well, I hope I wasn't too. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, before we leave, David, you want to talk about Lovecraft Pod? Lovecraft, yeah. Lovecraftpod.com. Nice. And um, if you're oh, out yeah. there listening to us and you would want to give us a, um, a like or a review or some ratings on Apple uh, Podcasts or iTunes, that would really help us out a lot. And you've been doing some TikToks too as well. I have done some TikToks to promote the show and the nice. website. So. And I'm going to have one with, with you on it as a promo for this episode. Thank you for the picture, by the way. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, no problem. <laughs> All right, David Richard and Miss Files. I see the stars are no longer right. We must cease all discussions to align again next month. 
30 Plus Minutes of H.P. Lovecraft is sponsored by the Cosmic Horror DNA Test Kit. Find out what old ones you're related to. <laughs> this podcast is created in association with LovecraftPod.com and Logan Speculative Fiction Group. With the help of the Logan County Public Library and the Great Old Ones. Special thanks to Katie Tysons for always shooting 12 bullets when it comes to sound. And Joshua Dukes for the Turnip Shepherd Maker of Sandview. Until we meet again, may you avoid Princess Cthulhu and her hair. Mm-hmm.